Um, so summer is here, and in Birmingham, that means that it rains and that it's hot. And um, for those of us who are homeowners, it means lots and lots of yard work. Can I get an amen to the yard work? All right, so there's this good thing about yard work. The part of it is good is it's like very goal-oriented, right? For those of us that like to see things through completion, you start with a messy yard, and hopefully by the end of a Saturday or a couple hours, you're able to see where you've mowed. You're able to see kind of the ground, literally, <laughs> that you've covered and have accomplished something in a day. Um, there's also um, a lot to be known, a lot to learn in terms of what it takes to keep and maintain a yard. Um, when Holly and I bought the house that we lived in, the, the woman who owned the home before us, um, she had not just a green thumb, she had two green thumbs, maybe she had green hands, I'm not really sure. But there was the outside of our house, the yard was just beautiful, it was immaculate. She had rose bushes everywhere, she has fine uh, pruned azaleas. I mean, it just was gorgeous. And then Holly and I come on the scene and we have calculatedly over the past six years and systematically destroyed everything I think that she sought to build. Not intentionally, we just don't have that same sort of uh, uh, leaning toward uh, horticulture and making things look beautiful and green and those sorts of things. So what I do is uh, we've got these flower beds and we, the azaleas are evidently really hardy. They have not seemed to die yet. And we've got some monkey grass, which I think will live on the moon if it were somehow there. Um, and we have these two things are really hardy. But in between the azaleas and the monkey grass, um, we get all sorts of weeds that just pop up in there, right? And um, uh, it would be nice, it would be the right move if I would get into these beds and I would get down on my hands and knees and I would pull out by the root each one of those, um, each one of those weeds. But instead, I take uh, my awesome weed eater and I get behind in between the bushes and I go through and I, uh, I just nail the top of all these weeds, right? So I feel good at the end of the day. I feel good that I've like gone through, I've cleaned out the bed, you've got the azaleas, you've got the monkey grass, it looks all right. But what happens is, in Birmingham, it rains, and one week later, I'm not even sure how it happens, like miraculously, some, some way, these weeds, they've not only just grown back, they've like multiplied and quadrupled in size, and they're like all over the place. So where I feel like I've accomplished something, I come back and I'm really quickly defeated. I feel like I've done something, but all I've done is attack the top. I've not gotten to the source where that weed actually comes from. What's getting in there and disturbing the things that should be there, the way that it should look, even the health of the plants that are around it, it's all being affected by these little weeds that just keep coming back up because I'm attacking the top and I'm not attacking the source, I'm not attacking the root. I think a lot of times in life, this is how we approach living in the exact same way. We aim after the symptom, we aim after an issue and never really attack the root. Okay, so there, there are two different types aside from gospel-centered living, living that's founded on the grace and forgiveness that is extended through us, extended to us through the life, perfect life of Jesus on our behalf, his death in our place, it was a substitution for us, his resurrection from the grave that, that extends to us hope and forgiveness. Aside from centering our lives on that truth, on that grace, there's two other basic approaches among other religious systems, but basically they both are this symptomatic. They're attacking the top of the weed. They're attack, attacking the green. They're not going after the source. We've got moralism and we've got legalism. Moralism says, um, I just want to be a good person so I can feel good about myself. And this can even be divorced from any sort of idea of God or philosophical um, mindset. It's just me feeling good about me. So I'm going to do the right things. I'm going to be a morally upright 
person. The other is legalism. Moralism says, I'm just going to be right. Legalism says, I'm going to do right for the sake of being accepted. I'm going to check a list. I'm going to make sure that, that God, if I'm operating inside of some sort of religious system or even operating inside of Christianity, I'm going to do the right things. And if I do the right things, in turn, God will accept me. Now, both of these types of thinking, they're all focused on action. They're focused on doing the right thing. The appearance would be that the weeds have been cleared away and that I'm good to go for another couple of weeks. On the outside, it's right. We look like we're doing the right thing. We look like we're operating out of the right motives. But in those two systems, we're not, we're not operating out of a root. We're operating out of, out of self. Only Christianity operates differently like that. That our lives would be rooted, we would be grounded in the good news that Jesus is a friend to sinners and that he lived in perfection in our place and that dying in our place, he achieved for us forgiveness. So we don't have to work to just do the right things to be accepted. We don't have to work to do the right things just so people will think that we have it together. What we have to do is root our lives in the person of Jesus the source of who we are. And if our lives are rooted in him, the source of who we are, then what comes out of us looks like Jesus. So instead of attacking the symptom, instead of attacking what we see on the outside, we address the root. So just in in positive terms, if our lives are rooted in Jesus, then what comes out of our lives looks like Christ. It looks like the kingdom of God. And if our lives are rooted in self, or our lives are rooted in selfish ambition, or even moralism, or legalism, what comes out does not look like Christ. What comes out in the long run only leads to destruction, only leads to disappointment. When we look at the book of Proverbs uh, that Danny started us in last week, and we'll be working through the whole rest of the summer, the thing that we love about the book of Proverbs is it's really, really practical. Some people say the same thing about the book of James. It tells me what to do and what not to do. It gives me a list of things of of how life should work. And, And the truth about the book of Proverbs is it is God's wisdom for us in life. It's God's wisdom for us. And so he's telling us these different situations, these different scenarios that we're going to come across. We're going to talk about friendship and anger and work and envy and, um, and, and a whole myriad of issues. But at the end of the day, it's, it's God's desire for his people to live as citizens of his kingdom. Um, some people ask, does the, the book of Proverbs, does it even point to Jesus? Because all it seems like is just this list of things to do or the way that we should act or behave. But if we believe that all of scripture points to Jesus, then the book of Proverbs, because it is in scripture, because it's in the Bible, it has to point to Jesus. It has to point to Jesus. A pastor in Nashville, his name is Ray Ortland. he says that we see Jesus in scripture as prophet and priest, and here in the book of Proverbs, we see him as mentor, showing us how to live as citizens of his kingdom. And so he does this through Proverbs in, in, in all, sorts of, all sorts of different ways. And this morning, we're going to talk specifically about the issue of sexuality. Now, we live in a very um, sexually charged culture, and I don't have to dig too far in this to tell you. My, um, my own kids, Holly and I's kids, they're, they're very young. Um, we have a, a third grader, a second grader, and a, and a just graduated kindergarten, and we've got a, a five-month-old. And even to tell you that some of the conversations that we have had over the past couple of months with our kids, they've been very, very interesting. I mean, the things that our kids are being exposed to are, even, even compared to my generation, are at such an accelerated rate that I just would have never have guessed it. 
Technology has introduced some of these things. Media has introduced some of these things. It doesn't, doesn't matter how we got here. The truth is that we're here. In so many ways, this idea of sexuality, it pushes forward. We've got elementary age kids that are affected by it, middle schoolers, high schoolers. There's pressure. There's, um, there's expectation. There's even value that's found in this concept. Young adults, college students, um, uh, young professionals, you guys are living in the same spot. You're making these decisions about how you view this issue, how you view this topic. Will you live in chastity and fidelity one day, or will you live in pursuing selfish pleasure? Married adults, single adults, we're in the same spot. We have this issue of sexuality, and it's all around us. And how will we approach it? What will we do with it? Because the truth is, it's used for everything. It's almost like this language that is spoken, right? It's, it's, it's used to market everything from hamburgers, which is crazy, hamburgers, soft drinks, uh, cars. I mean, you name it. And in some way, this issue has been used to market it on a broader culture. And almost to the place that it's become this norm, it's this expectation. We become mute to it and blind to it. We don't see it. We don't hear it. Even when we speak about it, we're not really sure what, what to say. With the book of Proverbs this morning, um, God has wisdom for us, and he speaks directly to this issue. Um, so if you'll turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5, we're going to look at God's wisdom in the scriptures. Now, if you um, remember, the book of Proverbs is written often like a, um, a father giving wisdom to his, to his sons, um, uh, a father giving wisdom to his children. And this morning, um, our chapter, chapter 5, it starts off in the exact same way. Um, we have to remember that as we dig into this chapter, we're going to see this sort of progression. The father tells a story of sorts as he's speaking to his, as he's speaking to his son. Uh, Proverbs chapter 5, and this is starting in, uh, in verse 1. It says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman, they drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Now, what the, um, the, the writer of Proverbs, um, Solomon wrote a lot of it, but what he's writing is he's giving this advice, this wisdom to his son, and God's wisdom to us this morning. Um, he's, he's making this assumption that there will be temptation, and it is a safe assumption for the son, for the reader, and it's a safe, safe assumption for us here this morning. The temptation is going to be before us, and temptation is going to be attractive. It's going to look good. Now, what makes... Um, uh, what makes sexual temptation temptation? So God has given, has given us sex. He's given it to us um, as, as a gift, and he's given it to us as a gift in the context of marriage. But our culture in turn has taken something that has been given to us as a good gift and has turned it into this God, this thing that we worship and turn our hearts and our minds and our affections toward. And so what the writer of Proverbs, even for us, is saying today is that there is a right place for this. God has given it to us, and it is good, and there's a right context for it. But there's going to be temptation for us to operate, to live outside of God's intent for us as sex is given to us for marriage. 
There's going to be temptation. It's going to come. It's going to, it's going to look good. It's going to sound attractive. Even look at the wording at the beginning of, of chapter 5 here. He says, The lips of a forbidden woman, they're going to drip with honey. They're going to sound sweet. And her speech, it's going to be as smooth as oil. Temptation is going to be attractive. It's going to be something that we want and we desire. But the end result, what the Father says this morning, is that she's not sweet as honey, she's bitter as wormwood, which is this really aromatic kind of bitter uh, bitter scent and flavor, the opposite of of honey. And she won't be as smooth as, as oil. Her words that come across like that in the beginning they're sharp as a two-edged sword. There's a big difference between what, what, what oil provides and, and the way that a sword operates in cutting and even leading to death, which is, is where he goes in verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Temptation is a desire to do something that is wrong or unwise because it is an offense toward God. And temptation for us can present itself in a lot of different ways. In this regard, anything outside of the context of marriage is temptation, whether it is on a computer screen or a phone screen or a TV screen or with uh, another person. If it's outside of a relationship with your spouse, with your husband, with your wife, it's an offense toward God. Anything that would lead our hearts and minds in that direction is a temptation to live outside of God's purposes for us. He goes on in verse 7. He says, And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. It's like he's giving this warning, calling away from this temptation, this this coming shortfall. He says, Listen to what I'm saying. Don't forget what I'm going to tell you. Keep Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house lest you give honor to others and your, ear, and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and at the end of the life you groan. When your flesh and your body consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm on the brink of utter ruin in the assembly of the congregation." He says that temptation is coming and that it is not what it appears to be, that looks, they are deceiving. And so what do we do with them? What is our response? He says, don't even go near the door of our house. If temptation, if an offense towards God is on the brink, if it's something that looks attractive to you, stay as far away from it as you can. It may look good, it may sound good, you think that it may lead to satisfaction and pleasure, but stay as far away as you can. I think it's really interesting that, um, that Jesus speaks directly to this issue as well in the Gospels. Will you flip over with me to Matthew chapter 5? In Matthew uh, chapter 5, Jesus talks about the issue of lust and temptation, and he says it really clearly and plainly. Um, I have to be honest, in my years of ministry, this, uh, this issue has been the one that, uh, that I have talked about and counseled on and prayed with the most. And so sharing it with you this morning, even in the context that we're in with so many different demographics in the room, uh, my prayer is that truth will speak loudly to our hearts and to our minds. Um, this is Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 27. And this is Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a, a lot of great correlations between the book of Proverbs and Sermon on the Mount. 
In um, Matthew 5, starting in verse 27, Jesus says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the members of your whole body, um, lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Um, what Jesus is saying here when he, he says, um, if anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, that same kind of wording is the same wording that's used in Samuel whenever David was looking uh, at Bathsheba, whenever he was looking at the woman bathing on the rooftop. He looked at her, he desired her, he wanted her. And so what Jesus is saying here is that just the act of adultery itself is a step. It's, it's, a, it's a part of an offense toward God, but even looking at another woman in such a way that you would want her as your own that that's sin. It's an opposition. It's an affront toward God. And what he says here is, what Jesus says is, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He says it's better that you lose an eye or lose a hand than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, what Jesus is saying here is he's, is he literally saying, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If he were literally saying that, then we would all be eyeless and handless and footless, but would we still have the capacity to sin? Yes, we would. What Jesus is saying here is the same thing that the writer of Proverbs is saying in chapter 5. Stay as far away from her door as you can. Jesus is saying stay as far away from temptation as possible. Anything that would lead you to have a, a, a break in your relationship with the Father, that would lead you toward an offense, toward sin, Stay as far away from it as possible. Do everything you can to live life following Jesus Christ. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Don't go, even go near her doorway. Now we have to stop here for just a second and look at, at this kind of like whole process that's in play here. Jesus is saying stay as far away from temptation as possible. The writer of Proverbs says, don't even go near temptation as you can. Now, what we're talking about here is behavior modification, okay? Behavior modification is, is chopping the top off of a weed. It is making things look good. Now, what behavior modification can do is behavior modification can clean, clear the way for heart change, it can. We can. It's like setting up guardrails, right? So you, you do these things to keep you as far away from sin as possible. If your hands are going to cause you to sin, what Jesus is talking about, do everything you can to set up that guardrail, okay? It's keeping the car on the road. We've got guardrails on both sides. We're going to swerve a little bit, but it's going to keep us from going off the mountaintop. It's going to keep us from caravaning into, into sin. So we've got the guardrails up. But do the guardrails, do they in and of themselves, do they, do they specifically lead to intimacy and in following Christ? They can, guardrails, behavior modification, it can clear the way for heart change, but it will never last on its own. We don't just need guardrails, we need a new driver. We need heart change. Heart change is what keeps us away from temptation. So in terms of sexual temptation, you can, you can have a filter on your phone, you can have a filter on your computer, you can really put up parameters for how you engage with people of the opposite gender. You can do all of those sorts of things, and you should, hear me right, you should do, Holly and I do, you should do all of these things. The guardrails, they should be up. 
But at the end of the day, our heart is so prone towards sin that even if the guardrails are up, we're going to find a way to jump them. That's why the guardrails will not last. They will not endure. Why behavior modification only by itself will not last. We have to have heart change. We have to have heart change. Heart change always produces behavior modification. If our life is rooted in the good news, the truly good news of Jesus Christ, that we've been ransomed and redeemed in the midst of the car going over the guardrail. Literally, that's, that's what this is. In the midst of the car going over the guardrail, Jesus pulls us back and he shoves us out of the driver's seat and he sits down right next to us. And he drives in our place. Behavior modification, it, it can lead to heart change, but heart change always leads to behavior modification. It always leads to different actions. Every time. Only heart change that is rooted in the gospel will last. Only heart change that's rooted in the gospel will last. The gospel addresses our root, and we must rely on the power of Christ, not our own willpower. It will fail us. See, what the gospel does is it always turns our focus outward. It turns us away from our own uh, desire for gratification and satisfaction, and and it turns our hearts toward being ultimately satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. That grace past this life and past this body is what is extended to us, what is extended to us through him. He goes on to say, after talking about this idea of behavior modification and heart change, he goes on to say um, that giving into temptation will bring regret. So look in, uh, look in verse, uh, verse 9. It says, stay away from her house lest you... We're, I'm back in Proverbs 5, sorry. Um, Proverbs 5, we're going to look in verse 9. He says, don't go near the door of her house lest you give your honor to others and your years be merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labor goes to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of, the li- end of your life, you groan. This is like you've, you've chosen temptation. You've chosen to live a life contrary to God's desire for us. And at the end of your life, you're looking back and, and you're, you're groaning. Um, and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I think that I'm on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. It's like you look back and you, and you think, I, I knew that there was an intent for God in terms of sexuality. I knew that there was an intent for God in my life um, on that. But what I wanted more was my own satisfaction, was my own pleasure and desire. And so you live that life, you go down that path. And at the end of that life, you look back and you say, I wish I would have listened. I wish I would have listened for God's design and God's path for me. If you look further in verses 15 through 19, we see that resisting temptation, this is the alternate option, um, resisting temptation will bring satisfaction. Verse 15 through 19 says, um, drink water from your own cistern flowing from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad and streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. See, what we see here is what God's plan for us in this area specifically is. That we would, we would enjoy our spouse. 
that we would not just have sexual desire and sexual temptation, but God has given us a way to experience his plan in this area of our lives. And it's very explicit here. The Bible speaks very specifically to this topic. And that anything outside of this will lead us to regret, will lead us to disappointment. I could go through this list of reasons. I could go through how this could lead to disappointment and regret if we don't live this area of our life in the context of God's will. But the truth is we have all experienced it. We've all been affected by it. We've all seen it. We've all heard stories. And my job this morning is not for me to convince you by reasoning, but my, my job this morning is to give you, to give us the word of God, the truth of God for us, and that the spirit of God would, would encourage us that he would draw us to repentance and that he would give us resolve in this specific area of our lives. The writer of Hebrews goes on to ask the question, why? This is probably one of the most helpful questions in sermon preparation right here, is why? Why does this matter for us? In verse 20, he says, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Because God has a plan for us. The truth for us this morning is that God loves us. We know his love ultimately for us because we see the cross. We see that God came down and he took our place. I was reading a a book earlier this week by a guy named uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, and he makes this statement that Jesus came to earth and he lived the first 30 years of his life just doing ordinary, uh, immiraculous things. He just was an ordinary guy. And, and, then, and, and then Jesus did begin his ministry and his messiahship, the fact that he is the son of God was, was, was uncovered, was, was made manifest for us. The fullness of the gospel was made clear. But before that ministry began, he was just like us. And he lived a life, an ordinary life, a mundane life for the glory of God. And that includes this aspect of our living Jesus was tempted in all ways, all ways, but he did not sin. So he's able to stand in our place in terms of this sin issue. He's able to stand in our place, having lived in perfection for us, and take our sin upon himself and extend us forgiveness. So temptation is coming, what do I do? Okay, been clear on this issue of temptation. And we all know that we're going to walk out these doors. You're going to sit in your car. You're going to pull out your phone. You're going to look at whatever sports, whatever's going to happen. Temptation is going to come towards you. And let me be clear this morning that I'm not just talking to guys. In terms of temptation in this area, I'm not just talking to men. I think, I think that often we, we just take and we segment temptation in sexual areas and we, we, we just pile them on guys. This issue is for all of us. So temptation, what is coming? What do I do? In a moment of clarity, listen to wisdom. This is what the writer of of Proverbs says in, um, in verse 21. He says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. It's like it's like the writer of Proverbs is saying, pursue wisdom in this area. Act wisely in this area. Be resolved in this area now because temptation is coming. And what do we do in the midst of temptation? We remember truth. So in a moment of clarity, listen to wisdom. Um, second thing that we, we need to do is we need to address the root issue. Okay? And this is, um, this is something that takes a little bit more work, I think. In terms of temptation in this area, the, 
addressing the root issue is not always necessarily just addressing desire. The question we may need to ask is, what insecurity am I trying to to work my way around and turning to this temptation in its place? What kind of shortcoming do I find in myself? What kind of selfishness am I grounding my life in that I would turn to temptation in this way? Address the root, not just the symptom. Aim for heart change, not just for behavior modification. In a moment of clarity, listen to wisdom to address the root issue. I wanted to make this statement. There's, uh, there's a guy that I've, I've been able to build a relationship with over the past couple of years, and um, we've, we've talked about this area of temptation in his life. And um, one thing that he's, he's gotten to this place that whenever he is faced with temptation and, um, and uh, in whatever form that it is, is uh, introduced itself, he will say out loud, you're death to me. You're death to me. This is the opposite of the gospel. This is not life-giving. You are death to me. He's addressing the issue at its root. It's not satisfaction, it's death. In a moment of clarity, listen to wisdom. Address the root issue. Number three, remember truth. Remember truth. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God, he is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And that way of escape, his name is Jesus. Remember truth. Remember truth that that Jesus in his resurrection from the grave, he overcame sin and overcame death. And through our faith in him, he extends that to us. We trust in, we trust in him. Through Jesus' life in our place and his death in our place, he's overcome sin. And he extends it to us. So my prayer this morning, this is, a, this is a strategy of sorts. This is a strategy of whenever temptation comes, is exactly what the writer of Proverbs was giving to his son. You're going to be tempted, so now what do I do? And our goal is this morning that God will use his word and his will for his people to draw us to repentance and to give us resolve in the area of sexual temptation and sin. The truth is we need to submit this area of our lives to Christ the same way that we submit every other desire that we have in life to Jesus. You see, when we choose to follow him, we turn our lives over to him. Not my will, but your will. Not my desire for my finances, but your desire for my finances. Not my desire for my kids, but your desire for my kids. Not my desire for my career, but your desire for my career. Not my desire for my sexuality, but your desire for my sexuality. For the single adult, I would say this morning, um, a good friend of mine, Matt Curlin, uh, he says that chastity and fidelity are two, t- two sides of the same coin. The same thing that will keep us chaste, exercising sexual discipline as a single person, is the same thing that will keep, um, keep this issue in the bounds and in the context of marriage as a married person. Develop, resolve, Pursue Christ before you pursue self-centered pleasure and satisfaction. 
for the husband and wife, God has given you his design for this area of your life. He's given it to you. It's an opportunity for you to pursue Christ-centered purity in your marriage, to pray for purity in your marriage. Now, for those, um, those of you living in regret this morning, and I say this really broadly because I think it would be a safe statement to say that um, in, uh, in one way or another, every single person in this room is living in regret or in failure and in some way in regard to this issue, in some way. But I want to remind us this morning that there is good news in the midst of failure. And that good news is that Jesus is a friend to sinners. He's a friend to failures. He's a friend to people that mess up. Remember, um, remember uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery in, um, in John chapter 8? Such a great story. So this woman has been caught in sexual sin. And um, these guys, they bring, them up, bring her to Jesus. And um, they say, the law of Moses tells us that if this happens that she should be stoned. And so Jesus is standing there with them and he, he bends down and he writes something in the sand. He writes something on the ground. We don't know what he writes. Who knows? Wouldn't you love to know what he wrote there? <laughs> Who knows? We don't know what he wrote, but what we know is what happens right after that. That one by one, the, the men that brought to condemn her, to accuse her, they walk away. The scriptures even tell us from the oldest to the youngest, they just start kind of like filing off. And Jesus looks up, he looks at the woman And he says, are you standing here by yourself? And his response to her is, they don't condemn you and I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus extends grace to this woman in the midst of her failure and then he calls her to more. He calls her to abundance. He calls her to life rooted in himself. We don't know what happens to this woman. We don't know what temptation she was faced with. We don't know how she succeeded and how she failed. But what we do know is that the picture of grace that is extended to her and God's word for us is the picture of grace that's extended for us today. Jesus is a friend to failures. Just like we read in Proverbs 5.21, the verse that we just read about God knowing everything about us, remember that you are known by God. He knows you and he loves you. And that we need to intentionally be known by others. In terms of putting up guardrails in our lives and, and really striving for God's plan in this area of our lives, we need to be known by people. We need, to have, we, we, we need to have people in our lives that know our temptations, that know our struggles. In our marriage and, and also men, I need men in my life that know that aspect of my life. Women, you need women in your life that know that aspect of your life. God has extended his care to you in the way that he knows you by offering you community in the body of Christ. And we have to intentionally pursue that. It's not easy. Sometimes it's awkward. Sometimes it's really difficult. But it's God's care for his people through his body, the church. Over the past um, several weeks, uh, under the leadership of Gary Harvey, this has been a great move for our church. Um, there is a ministry called uh, Route 1520, and I think there's actually something in your worship guide. There has been for the past couple weeks. And what this is is a, is a safe place for people that have issue with sexual addiction or sexual temptation to be, be able to seek care, to be able to be drawn to repentance and push toward resolve. 
And so as you're, if, if you're in that space where you need to intentionally seek and pursue some really difficult conversation and some really intentional help, this could be a really great place for you to start. Remember that God loves you and he knows you and he wants you to be known by others. I want to um, spend a little bit of time in reflection before we wrap things up together this morning. Um, so if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes. There are a couple things that I want us to pray together. And I want us to intentionally pray these things. Knowing that God has a plan for us in this area. God has a plan for the way that we act and respond to sexual temptation. We want to pray for two things. We want to pray for repentant hearts and we want to pray for strong resolve. So if you just bow your heads and I would just invite you to pray. If there needs to be a place where you turn from specific sin in your life and turn toward the forgiving grace of Jesus, that you would do that. That you would ask for forgiveness. The scriptures tell us that when we confess our sin, that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So ask for, receive that forgiveness this morning. And then ask for resolve. Ask for resolve and strength that is rooted in the gospel that we would pursue God's plan for this area of our lives, that we would do it for our good, for the good of our relationships, for the sake of the gospel, that we would be people that clearly follow Jesus in all areas of our lives and ultimately for the glory of God. God, this morning we thank you that you are a good and gracious Father that you don't just land us here on this planet and expect us to figure out things on our own, but you have spoken to us through your word, that you've given us wisdom through your scriptures. And this morning, we want to say that we don't just want to drive after doing the right things, but we want to live lives that are rooted in the goodness of Jesus, the forgiveness and the grace that we receive through him. And that as we've received that, that we would pursue following after him in all areas of our lives. Not just to look like good people, but to be people that are grounded, that are making known the goodness of Jesus. God, so as we ask for repentance, as as we turn from our sin and we turn toward Christ, as we ask for resolve, we pray that we would do it in such a way that honors you, that trusts you for every next step. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.